Now, somehow it's been gotten around. I don't know how it is. People have written to me about this. They've heard it. That I feel that Paul rebelled against God when he went to Jerusalem that last time. Just uh, take my word for it or otherwise read the book. I don't believe that at all. I don't believe he rebelled against God at all when he went to Jerusalem. However, on the other hand, neither do I believe that Paul was perfect, that everything he did and was exactly right and that he knew exactly what to do all the time. We know his writings, of course, are inerrant because God inspired them. But he himself said, brethren, I'm not yet perfect. I have not yet attained. And uh, we must bear that in mind, too. We have to do here with the uh, work of a very great man of God, and we should consider it as such. I think before we deal with the interruption that we want to discuss this morning, of the most violent interruption of all, we should consider two passages in Romans. Will you turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 9, uh, chapter 10 first. Let's do it and then back up. Go to chapter 10 first and the first three verses. Romans 10, the first three verses. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is. Notice the feeling he puts into this, the passion. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record. They have a zeal of God or for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about like so many have, the Gentile and Jew is alike in this, going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. There's even a stronger statement than this in the ninth chapter and uh, the first three verses. Now listen to the feeling of this. Get the heart of the man. I say the truth in Christ and lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. He raises his hand and swears with an oath that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish myself accursed from Christ for my brethren. He knew he couldn't do it, but he could wish it. I could wish myself accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. He had been the one who had led them in persecution against the followers of Christ. He had been the one above all others who had instilled in their hearts the bitter enmity against Christ that he himself had then felt. And, beloved, he never forgave himself for it. God forgave him, but he never forgave himself for it. He kept feeling that continual sorrow, and he had had a part in it. We're going to see that in our lesson this morning. Let's turn back, then, to the 21st chapter of Acts. 
He's on his way to Jerusalem. And uh, let's begin with the 15th verse. Acts 21, verse 15. And after those days, we took up our carriages. That is, the things we had to carry. That's simple. Some have translated it baggage. I don't believe that's quite sufficient. They had more than baggage with them. That is their clothing and necessities for living. They had a huge collection. Paul had been for at least a year collecting money from the Gentile churches to help the poor saints at Jerusalem. And we don't have time to go into it. I believe I do have it in the last volume on Acts, though, how there were two delegates from chosen by each of the Gentile churches. And he had a company of eight right there. There must have been a young caravan on their way to, and they would need that. They would need the protection. There was a lot of money involved. And here they went with this great collection that we took up our carriages and went up to Jerusalem. There went also with us certain of the disciples of Caesarea, add more people, perhaps for protection largely, and brought with them one Menaeson of Cyprus, an old disciple, that is, one who had been one for a long time with whom we should lodge. He evidently came from Cyprus, but he had a house, had a home in Jerusalem. And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. That must have been a happy meeting at the home of Manasseh. But there's a sad note. The apostles were not there. The leaders of the Jerusalem church were not there. You know how you can tell how important a dignitary is who arrives to go to Washington and visit the president? Is the president there to meet him? <laughs> you see. In some cases, oh, that's not important enough. They're not there. We know that the apostles and elders were not there. Verse 18. The day following, Paul went in with us Unto James. James should have been there. James should have gone out of Jerusalem like some others did to meet him. James was not there. Where were the apostles? They're not mentioned. It says all the elders. Somebody says, well, maybe that includes the apostles. I don't believe so because up until this time, six times we read about the apostles and elders. The elders evidently were spoken of as those under the apostles, but above between the apostles and the throng at Jerusalem. So James was there, the great legalist, the Lord's brother in the flesh whom they had exalted to the position that God said or Christ said Peter should have held. And that in Galatians 2 we read several times Peter should have held. Now then, they, James was there, and all the elders were present. I wonder, no, I shouldn't, I don't like to conjecture. I don't like, I don't like to uh, speculate. 
I'll let this, just this one little thought in, but I don't do this often, you know that. Uh, I wonder whether the apostles specially absented themselves. A great issue was to rise here. Peter had made his views known at the Jerusalem Council, 15 Acts 15. We believe we Jews are going to be saved just like these Gentiles. We believe God has made no difference between us and them. Why put on them a yoke that not only our fathers, but we have not been able to bear? Now, James, however, was even the head of that council. Now, verse 19. When we had saluted them, Paul declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. He told them the great things God was doing among the Gentiles. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and... Oh, I'm so sorry for that and. I'm so, this was a sad day for Paul. They glorified God and. And what? Did they say we're going to, uh, we're going to try to get the Jewish believers in Jerusalem to understand your ministry? Does it say and they said, uh, we want you to address the Jewish church here at Jerusalem personally and tell them all about this? Did they say, uh, we're going to try to help you so that this gets... No. They glorified... Did they say... Uh, did, does it say they glorified God and said, Brother, we can't express our thanks enough for the sacrifices that these Gentiles have made to get this great offering, this kind gift to us, here in Jerusalem, who have now find, found ourselves in financial trouble. Not a word about all of that. They glorified God, they said, Praise the Lord, and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe. Believing Jews, that Christ was the one they trusted in. And they are all zealous of the law. This speaks to me of the decline in the church of Jerusalem. This speaks to me of the decline among the twelve apostles, and there was such a decline, perhaps with the exception of Peter. All these Jews, now, that was not even said in Acts 15, now they're zealous of the law. Who made them so zealous of the law? Don't we have to connect that with the party, James' party, that intimidated Peter when he ate, when he came to, or went to eat among the Gentiles at Antioch. Peter was having such a good time, but, oh, soon he was intimidated. Somebody went to his table and said, say, Peter, there's some folks from James' party coming up. And Peter said to the waitress, I'm, this is not speculation, this is imagination, but uh, I believe God has given us sanctified imaginations. She, he said to the waitress, Waitress, would you get us separate tables, please? We don't want to start any trouble here, and there's some coming from Jerusalem. We believe we should eat separately from the Gentiles. And for that, remember, Paul rebuked him soundly. Now then, there, thou seest how many thousands, really the word is myriads, tens of thousands, 
of Jews there are which believe, and they're all zealous of the law. And they're informed of thee, that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it, therefore? The multitudes must needs come together. You'd think they'd be happy the multitude would come together so they could hear Paul preach and tell these wonderful things, wouldn't you? But the, multi the multitude has to meet. They know you're here, for they will hear that thou art come. Do therefore this. Do you see a little pressure there? Now just do this. Don't ask questions. Don't uh, leave the reasons and the explanations to us. Do therefore this that we say to thee. We have four men which have a vow on them, clearly a Nazarite vow. Them take and purify them, thyself with them and be at charges with them. Sometimes a rich man would pay for the five sacrifices that each one had to offer, five blood sacrifices. And that cost money, so someone would pay for it and sponsor them, if you please. Be at charges with them, that they may shave their heads, and all may know that those things whereof they are informed of thee are nothing. Now, they were not exactly nothing, were they? The charge they, or the, what they said was not exactly true. But part of it was true. The Jews among the Gentiles were written the same letters as the Gentiles. Galatians, Paul speaks about us both and, and all, Jew and Gentile, and shows that they're one in Christ and they're, they're now free from the law and Christ died, came in due time to make us free to redeem us from the law. Now they're intimidated. Now do this, do this. And... Uh, we want them to know that there's nothing to this. I don't, they say in the next verse, as touching the Gentile, we've written and concluded that they observe no such thing. I don't know what went on in the heart of Paul at this time. I don't know. I know there have been times in my own life when it has been very hard to know the will of the Lord. I know that Paul was not a turncoat. <laughs> I know that when he says he became as a Jew to the Jews and as a, he didn't, he didn't uh, uh, put himself under the law and then from under the law again, why the Jews and the Gentiles live right together. They would have caught on to that right away and said, why that man, you can't trust him. He, he speaks with forked tongue, you know. No, but here was a very special case, so much at stake. He did want to plead with his countrymen once more. He wanted to tell them what Christ had done and what Christ meant, what he wanted Christ to mean to them. When God had said he shouldn't go, remember, he said, but Lord, that's another occasion, he says, Lord, remember what I did to these people. He felt so largely responsible. But James and his party, if James was the spokesman here, at least it was his party, he didn't tell the whole truth here. Turn back to Acts 15, please. Uh, I alluded to this, but let's read it and see it. Acts 15 and the ninth verse. Now you're in the great Jerusalem council. And Peter says this. He bases it on his own experience with Cornelius. God put no difference between us Jews 
and them, the Gentiles, purifying their hearts by faith. No difference between us. Look at the tenth verse. Now, therefore, why do you tempt God to put a yoke or to try to put a yoke on the disciples which we haven't been able to bear. We are our fathers, nor we. Uh, verse uh, 11. But we believe, now this is Peter speaking, we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we Jews shall be saved even as they. And he proved that he believed it. He later wrote those wonderful epistles in which we find what the theologians call Paulinisms. He was made, he himself, I beg your pardon, bear our sins in his own body on the tree. He was, the just one was made, uh, suffered for us the unjust that he might bring us to God. Again and again we have in Peter's epistles the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ apart from the law. He says, you're not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, which was commanded in the Old Testament time, but with the precious blood of Christ. Why didn't James tell them this? Why didn't James tell them all the truth? But now, no, he was the legalizer. Now, please understand that when he writes you find the law strong, and God no doubt was in that all, because this is going to come into its own after the body of Christ is gone, and the law will have a big place again. And that was inspired of God, but this was not. The record of it is, it's a faithful record. But here he presses Paul, do this now. And to make a long story short, Paul began to do it, but God interrupted it. Now, this is, there's really a triple interruption here. This is not the violent interruption of which I speak, but God interrupted this plan of Paul's, and this plan really, which was instigated by James and his party. Look at Acts 21, please, verse 27. And when the seven days were almost ended, now they're ready for the sacrifices. Seven days of purification are ended. The Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up the people and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! Help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people, that is the people of Israel, and against the law and this place, and further has brought Greeks into the temple. Now, he hadn't done it, but they thought he had. It's explained later. They thought that they had brought, he had brought a Greek into the temple and hath polluted this holy place because they had seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him and they thought he had brought him into the temple. Verse 30, And all the city was moved and the people ran together and they took Paul and dragged, that's what Drew means, dragged him out of the temple and forth with the doors were shut. They didn't go on with that ceremony. They didn't offer those sacrifices. He was dragged out of the temple, and the doors were shut. And as they went about to kill him, 
tidings came. Isn't it strange, beloved? This happens to have been the Jews, but the Gentiles are just the same. As uh, Sir Robert Anderson has said, some people could go through a crowd and many have many enemies, but they wouldn't be that bitter against him. But let it be a religious question, <laughs> and then it's quite different. They went about to kill him. Tidings came to the chief captain of the band, and all Jerusalem was in an uproar, who immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down unto them. And when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left beating Paul. Have we ever suffered for Christ like that? They were beating him, and it says they would have killed him. But the centurions and the chief captain and the soldiers ran down to stop it. They would have killed him. Ah, oh, how little we have suffered for the Lord. I've never even had my face slapped, have you? For Christ? Never. I've had some mean things said, but I've never even had my face slapped. But this dear man, a great man of God that he was, they took him and they dragged him, insulted him, they punched him and beat him. They would have killed him. Then the chief captain came near, verse 33, and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains, dangerous man, and demanded, who are you? Demanded who he was and what he had done. And some cried one thing and some another among the multitude. And when he couldn't know for the certainty of the tumult, for a certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the castle. And listen. And when he came upon the stairs, so it was that he was born of the soldiers for the violence of the people. The soldiers had to carry him up that stairs. The people pulled at him and they wanted to tear him to pieces. That's what it says in one of the accounts of it. They would have torn him to pieces. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying away with him. That's one cry that was constant. Some cried one thing and some another, but one cry was constant, away with him, away with him. And when Paul was to be led into the, cas into the castle, now this is interesting. Beloved, if you have the power of the Holy Spirit, if even with all your mistakes it is your deep desire to do the will of God, oh, that makes for a cool head when everybody else gets all excited and worked up. The only cool one, it seems, in this whole mob was Paul. Listen. He said in verse 37, when he was led into the castle, he said to the chief captain, May I speak unto thee? Who said, Canst thou speak Greek? He had a surprise there. I thought you were somebody else. And Paul said, verse 39, I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a citizen of no mean city. This was one that if you were born in it, you were a born Roman, Paul walked. It had great status in the Roman government. So he says, I'm a Jew, but I'm a citizen of Tarsus, citizen of no mean city. And please, I beseech thee, please, let me speak to the people. And when he had given him leave, 
he got another surprise, this chief captain. When he had given him leave, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with his hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence, he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue. Surprise! The chief captain had just asked him, can you speak Greek? Oh, yes. I come from a very important Roman city. I come from Cilicia. Can I speak to the people? Sure, I'll let you do it. And he beckons unto them and is a great silence and he speaks in the Hebrew. Why do you suppose? Well, Dean Housen has written a marvelous, oh, a marvelous message on the alertness and presence of mind of the Apostle Paul in the book, in his book, The Character of St. Paul. His alertness, oh, he used that little thing God gave him up on top of his shoulders right here. He spoke to them in Hebrew for two reasons. First of all, it was their mother tongue. More than that, it was their religious tongue. It was the religious language of the people of Israel, and he wanted to make them feel themselves one with him and him one with them in that way. But more than that, he didn't want Lysias to understand. He didn't want the chief captain to get this because he was going to present himself a little bit differently, not contradictory or dishonest in any way. But to this Jewish audience, he was going to present himself a little differently than he had to Lysias. He just told him, I'm a citizen of a Roman city. Please let me speak to the people. And that please was enough when his Roman status was considered. So he spoke unto them in the Hebrew tongue, and the second verse says, when they heard that, they gave them more silence. <laughs> Already there was a great silence. Now they gave them more silence. You could hear a pin drop, as they say. There was great, what an audience to, well, I can almost hear a pin drop here. Thank you. You're a wonderfully quiet audience. But imagine the Apostle Paul, what an opportunity and how, now he begins speaking. And beloved, I think here all of us have much to learn from Paul's character. He was, many of us brash people, and I have a tendency to be brash to speak out too soon. Most people that know me feel I'm rather outspoken, and I have been, and I believe sometimes we should be. But we must be careful not to be brash, and the apostle was so careful. You'd think he'd immediately begin pleading with them, no, no, listen. He says to them, men, brethren, and fathers. I beg your pardon, let's begin with verse 3. Uh, I verily am a man. Yes, men, brethren, and fathers. I'm sorry, I was correct. In the first verse, men, brethren, and fathers. Get that, fathers? Why, he could have talked to most of them as a father, but he recognizes the age and the, the seniority as far as Israel was concerned of these people. Men, brethren, and fathers. This is very conciliatory. I verily am a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, so much the same, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city. 
He had been brought up in Jerusalem at the feet of one of the greatest jurists of the time, that is a religious jurist, Gamaliel. Yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers and was zealous toward God as ye all are this day. He didn't say what a commotion you've made. You know, really we don't get anywhere getting all excited and and heeding ourselves. No, he didn't even mention it. <laughs> he said, I was zealous toward God, as you all are this day. And I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. I felt just like you. As also the high priest doth bear me witness, now he's getting a high priest to testify for him, if you please. The high priest will bear me witness on all the state of the estate of the elders, from whom also I received letters unto the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring them which were there, bound to Jerusalem for to be punished. Two things about that verse are interesting. The record in Acts 9 says Paul desired, he went to them and desired of them letters to Damascus. But here the point is that they were only too glad to give him such letters. He calls for the high priest to bear him witness, and he says, I received from the Sanhedrin, he doesn't say I asked them for them, but he does say I received them of them, letters to Damascus to bring them which were there, that is, the believers in Christ, bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. He's careful to explain that word persecuted, which means to drive away in verse 4. He's careful to explain that, to be punished. He really thought with himself that these people were guilty. And when he asked for letters and received of them letters to Damascus, it was that these people might be punished. And wisely, he now uses that word. And it came to pass as I made my journey and was come near to Damascus about noon. How many here have been to Palestine? Anybody? Raise your hand. Oh, about six, eight. All right. You know how bright the sun is there. If you went with a tour, you know how they told you, put your camera two stops down. The sun is so bright. Now here in the noonday, when most people were asleep, but he had to keep traveling, was breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. And here at noonday, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. Imagine that, a light above the brightness of the noonday sun in Palestine. Well, then he tells the story of his uh, conversion. What I want you to notice, look at verse 12 and the few verses on, you see his alertness and presence of mind again, surely God-given, he says, one Ananias, now he's converted now, and one Ananias, 
a devout man according to the law. When you quote this verse, and many of us have quoted, that Ananias was a devout man according to the law, and having a good report among all the Jews, remember, here's where you read it. You read it in this context where Paul is trying to conciliate these people. The man who baptized me, the man who God sent to tell me what to do, he was a devout man according to the law. Christian, but a devout man according to the law and having a good report among all the Jews. And he came and stood and said unto me, now notice what this devout Christian or believing Jew calls Paul. Brother Saul, do you see what he's doing? Do you get the feel of it? How he's seeking with God's help to appeal to this angry, angry crowd. Brother Saul, receive thy sight. And the same hour I looked upon him. And he said unto me, notice this phrase, the God of our fathers hath chosen thee. A man of good report among the Jews, a devout man according to the law, calls him Brother Saul, and says, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee. What a message for his beloved kinsman according to the flesh, that thou shouldst know his will and see that just one and shouldst hear the voice of his mouth. And thou shalt be his witness unto the Gentiles. No, not yet, not yet. Doesn't mention that word yet. Thou shalt be his witness to all men. That's where the twelve have first been sent to all men and every creature. Thou shalt be his witness to all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized. Here's the first change in baptism in the order. At Acts 2.38 was repent and be baptized. Here he had already been saved, it's evident. But he gets into Damascus, and there this man says to him, Arise and be baptized, and wash away ceremonially, of course, thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And he says, It came to pass, when I was come again unto Jerusalem, even while I prayed in the temple. Now he shows that it was desire to get back to Jerusalem. And he's praying in the temple. He's not causing any insurrection. As I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance. And I saw him, I saw him again, the Lord Jesus Christ. I saw him saying unto me, Make haste, get thee quickly out of Jerusalem for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. Oh, he's edging up to the subject now. Now they are listening, at least. They're listening with the most rapt attention. But he tells how he had been there, and the Lord said, they won't listen to you. The implication being, oh, I hope that now you will listen to me. They will not receive thy testimony concerning me. And I said, I argued with the Lord about it. I said, Lord, they know. No wonder they won't listen to me. 
He's giving them the reason why they wouldn't listen. They know that I imprisoned and beat in every synagogue those who believed on thee. And now he had turned. How would they listen to a turncoat like that? And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also, now they're listening to him telling how he was praying, how he was talking to the Lord. The Lord said, go, they won't listen. He said, oh, Lord, please, please, they'll listen to me. When the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death and kept the raiment of those who slew him. And he said unto me, oh, now comes that moment. Paul has to get to it. The question was why he had done this great work among the Gentiles. And the greater question was how he could preach that among the Gentiles which he had preached. He had to come to that word Gentiles and here I imagine very diffidently he says the Lord said unto me depart for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles and they gave him audience unto this word that word Gentile was it not to the word Jesus he'd use that several times no they could take that they had learned they had to take it here were all these Jews who believed in Christ and a great company of the Pharisees among them no but when he got to the word Gentiles, at that word, immediately Bedlam broke loose. They gave him audience unto this word and then lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the face of the earth. It is not fit that he should live. And as they cried out, they cast off their clothes and threw dust into the air. And the chief captain said you better carry him into the castle again commanded him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging that he might know wherefore they cried so against him he never did get that scourging done but see the anger here you're going to the Gentiles and tell them that they can just be saved and here we Jews some of them, the great mass of them not saved, but many thousands were. Thou seest how many, how, how many tens of thousands there are which believe. They were surely in that audience too. They were surely there. Ah, but there Paul stands all alone. Nobody to help him. The twelve, didn't any of the twelve rise up and say, we better stay with Paul now. He's in great danger Evidently, no, there's no record of anybody to help him. Now, do you see here, beloved, what I'm sure I do see? The Jews tolerated those who believed in Christ as their Messiah and went on under the law. That they tolerated. But they could not tolerate this man who went to the Gentiles and told them about salvation by grace why the church at Jerusalem in numbers was 
prosperous. I want you to look at a few verses with me. Let's see, how's the time? Uh, yes, look please at the second chapter of Acts, verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added daily to the church such as should be saved. Now that number of 3,000 is growing, growing every day. Look at the fifth chapter, verse 14. Some people think that because of the persecution later on, none were left. We'll see. Chapter 5, verse 14. And believers were the more added to the Lord. Multitudes, multitudes, both of men and women. Chapter 6, verse 1. And in those days when the number of the disciples was, now it's not added, now the word is multiplied, was multiplied, there arose a murmuring. Now then, the seventh verse, chapter 6, verse 7, And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied at Jerusalem greatly, and a great number of the priests, I said Pharisees, I'm sorry, the priests were obedient to the faith. Look please at chapter 15. Just remember the chapter. You don't have to turn to it even. There they are holding their own council. You know what that means, don't you? The Jews had their council, their supreme court. Here the disciples are holding their own council at Jerusalem right in the face of of the hierarchy at Jerusalem. How powerful they have become in numbers. <coughs> now, we know that in Acts 8 it says they were all scattered except the apostles. But evidently they came back and came back fast and came back in great numbers after that persecution got going. And now the leaders of Jerusalem hardly dare to touch them. And now when you come to the 21st chapter there's James' testimony. Thou seest what myriads of Jews, tens of thousands of them, there are that believe, and they're all zealous of the law. <coughs> now then, there was that great company. You would have thought there would have been some protection, some help, somebody to stand with Paul, but no. Beloved, it is still so. In the Roman Catholic Church, we have the Pope, we have the Twelve Apostles, so-called, we have the Sanhedrin, the 71 in the College of Cardinals, that's what their number is ideally supposed to be. We have the tabernacle up in front of their churches where the host is. It's a mixture of law and the Sermon on the Mount and politics and everything that's tolerated you have men all over who are preaching uh, Protestants who are preaching the law they say you, you need it they don't explain exactly how but you were under the law you have men preaching the Sermon on the Mount they don't keep it but they preach it they preach a social gospel you have men preaching Everything but grace, and they're tolerated. But you preach the unadulterated gospel of the grace of God, and you will not be tolerated. 
There's a big empire, a religious empire in Chicago. And please don't misunderstand me. Thank God for Moody Bible Institute. We need them. We need every fundamentalist we can possibly have in the world today. But they will accept so, they'll accept Nazarenes and, and all, many who don't go according to their doctrinal statement, but they won't advertise our books in their magazine. They say, no, somehow that's divisive. I said to Mr. Coder, but in what way is it divisive? We say that believers in Christ, whether they're Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists, Congregationalists, or what, that they're one in Christ. Is that divisive? He said, well, I can't just explain it. Maybe it was more when O'Hare was alive. I said, well, I just can't understand how this is divisive, except in the sense that the truth, of course, always causes division. Some accept it and some don't. But nevertheless, we, can't, we couldn't get to first base. I don't try to embarrass them. I don't go to their conferences or anything because it might cause some embarrassment. People gather around you know, and things like that. I think we've been most gracious with them. What have we done wrong? We say Christ is all. We say that he died for our sins and we're accepted in the beloved one. We're made complete in Christ. What have we done wrong? We're as fundamental as any fundamental group in the country and we are more, more, what's the word, vigorously so than they are because we will not even allow in what was once required for the remission of sins because it cast a shadow, a reflection on the finished work of Christ. Now that's why Paul was so hated. That's what they had against Paul. It was not just that he went to the Gentiles. The twelve were, were sent to the Gentiles. And uh, it's, it's evident that some people think they were against the Gentiles being saved. And the Jewish church was. No, there's too much evidence that they rejoiced when Gentiles were saved. But they didn't want this message of pure, unadulterated grace. They didn't want the preaching of Jesus Christ according to to the revelation of the mystery. And if you're not preaching that, beloved, you are not preaching what Paul calls my gospel. I hope you'll never be ashamed of that phrase. He said, he said by inspiration again and again, this is my good news, the good news God committed to me. And he uses very phraseology to say the same thing again and again and again. And let us be not ashamed to say that's my gospel too. That's the good news I have for the world about me. Now then, in their blind rage, let's look please at chapter 21, verses 22, and uh, I beg your pardon, 22, verses 22 and 23. They gave him audience unto this word and then lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. And as they cried out, they cast off their clothes and threw dust into the air. And now they really are out to get him. They really want him put to death. But beloved, we had better be ready if we want to stand for this message of grace, if it is really meant to us what I know it's meant to so many here if it has really thrilled our hearts the way we say it has, and I believe it has, 
We must be ready to stand right now. Stand, be the kind of people that stand. Be the kind of people. Ask God for the grace to be the kind that will stand up for the truth. Matsar Sulenrock once wrote a little thing. He said, he said, uh, it's not, we've come to the place where it's not enough to sit up and take notice. We've got to stand up and be counted. And beloved, where the new evangelical is concerned, the new evangelicalism start there. That neutralizes this whole message, and I beg of you, stand, and having done all, stand. Take, be sure to take some of those booklets along. Why BBF? A sensitivity training in the Bible. Be armed with hard questions for them when they try to infiltrate you and to get you to get you neutralized like the others are. Stand. And we must stand surely in this world for this wonderful gospel of the grace of God. They're going to try to neutralize you. I remember a dear lad years ago in New Jersey had a uh, desire to go to a Bible institute and uh, he went there. He had come to rejoice in the message of grace. He said, when I get there, the first thing I'm going to do is have a talk with the president. I don't think he understands these things and I'm going to try to show him the wonder of this great message. I said, that's good. I patted him on the shoulder. We'll pray for you. So he went there, and I didn't hear from him for a good while. And uh, finally, he wrote back and he said, but I find there are wonderful Christian people here too. Well, of course there are. There are wonderful Christian people in that crowd. Do you believe it? There were Jews there that truly loved the Lord. They were legalistic. They didn't see his grace. They didn't see the wonder of the all-sufficient finished work of Christ. But they surely were, there were nice people among them. That doesn't prove anything. We must go by the word of God. Well, this young man came back to visit me one time. And we got talking again. And I tried to rekindle that fire of the glory of the one body and the one baptism again. And as we talked, I didn't have my Bible. I was quoting to him. And I needed to find a place. I said, you mind if I use your Bible? He said, no, he handed it to me. And as I did, I opened it, and I noticed there were a lot of signatures, a lot of uh, autographs of really great men of renown, Christian men in his Bible. But the top one had been scratched out with a knife. I said, I'm curious. Who was the top one whose name you scratched out? He said, that was Brother J.C. O'Hare. I said, why'd you scratch it out? He said, well, if I had left it there, those others wouldn't sign. <laughs> well, I think, I think they would have. But he realized, he realized that somebody was taking a stand that he was not taking. Beloved, Satan hates grace. He hates it if you let others know that the work is finished. He hates it if you say to the poor drunkard in the gutter of the queen on her throne, Christ died for you. Your sins have been paid for. Believe and be saved. That he cannot abide. But, oh, beloved, if it has been a blessing to us, then we have a responsibility, do we not, to stand for it and to make it known widely. 
Turn, please, to Ephesians 3, a chapter and a... You've read that chapter again and again, but I ask you now to turn to it. Here, chapter 3, listen to it. For this cause, I, Paul... Who's prisoner? The prisoner of whom? Say it loud. A prisoner of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say the prisoner of the Jews. He doesn't say prisoner of the Romans. A prisoner of Christ. Christ put him in jail. Do you believe it? Oh, not as punishment. Please don't misunderstand me there. Christ had him in jail. He was a prisoner, not for. He was a prisoner for, too. But he was a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Christ interrupted that sacrifice. The doors were shut. Christ interrupted that speech. Oh, you say, no, the mob, the angry mob did it. Oh, but have you forgotten the sovereignty of God in this? I believe in the sovereignty of God. you believe it? I really do. Christ interrupted him there. Christ had him taken to Rome. You believe it? I do it again and again. Several times he calls himself a prisoner of Christ. Now then, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Why did Christ put him in jail? Say it for you Gentile. He, his heart, wouldn't your heart have gone back to Jerusalem had you been in his shoes? Had you been the one who had instilled into them the anger and the hate against Christ that he had instilled in them? Wouldn't you have a burdened heart for them because of it? Again and again his heart turned back to Jerusalem. Naturally so, and rightly so. <coughs> so God said, well, <coughs> pardon me, Christ said, I'll put him in jail. He can't get out then. And here he is, blessed phrase, and he says it with joy. The prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. Was he heard about it? Did he chafe under it? No, in the third chapter he says, I'm sitting in heavenly places in jail Ah, but sitting in heavenly places in Christ, he couldn't have been happier. I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard, oh, that's kind of sad, isn't it? It was being neutralized then already. Some hadn't even heard it, evidently. And some had heard it and forgotten. Some had heard it, heard it and lost the great glory of that vision. If you've heard... But it's sadder still that that has to be said now, 1900 years after Paul, is it not? We have to ask people, have you heard it? A friend of mine went to a certain pastor who evidently had never heard it, and he showed him the third, the ninth verse of this third chapter, to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. And he asked this pastor, what do you do with a verse like that? He said, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Fellowship of the mystery, fellowship of the mystery, that's a catchy phrase. I think I'll speak on that next Sunday. <laughs> he didn't have the slightest idea what it was about. Now then, Paul says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for us, for you Gentiles. If you have heard of the dispensation, the dispensing, the giving out of the grace of God, which is given me to you, how that by 
illumination of the Old Testament prophets, he helped me understand. No. By revelation, he made known unto me the secret. God had hidden this from ages and generations. In other ages, it was not made known. It was kept secret since the world began. Doesn't that show the love of God for us, beloved? In his heart, there was a secret of wonderful love and grace. He never told us so. He said, wait, I'll spring it on them. I'll wait till the chief of sinners is saved, and then they can see what that cross has accomplished. And when Saul went breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the, the disciples of the Lord, God reached down from heaven, not to crush him, to save him. And here he is gladly. Oh, the Lord works all out, he says. I'm the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. If you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. I have preached for almost an hour. Brother uh, Harlan told me I could preach to half past if I don't want, but I don't want. Moody used to say, rather leave them longing than loathing. And uh, I don't know if I've left you longing, I hope so. Oh, what a message we have, beloved. And if you have rejoiced in it, if you've come to love it, remember that is not enough. You have to be dedicated to it. A man may say to his wife, I love you. He's reading the paper and she says, dearie, do you love me? He says, wait a minute, wait till I find out what you're leading up to. <laughs> you know, or, or, or he may say, yeah, I love you, but he doesn't show it. You have to show it. He has to live for her. He has to show that he's willing to die for her. He has to be willing to give his all for her. And so we must be for that blessed one who gave his all himself for us. Just one minute for those here who may not be saved. I, I do feel so concerned and I know these brethren who are saved and sisters who are saved. We love you, dear friends. And our love is only the...